The Triathlon Show 265. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Trent is the Director of Performance Solutions at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific in Victoria, Canada, where his primary research focuses are in nutrition and inter- interaction of nutrition and physiology. And he also has uh, a keen interest in environmental factors and how they uh, impact physiology and endurance performance, things like heat and altitude training, and of course, nutrition and how that interacts with the environmental conditions. In this interview, we will discuss the current best practices from both applied and scientific perspectives when it comes to endurance and ultra-endurance sports, ultra-endurance being defined as events lasting four hours or longer. And uh, I just wanted to say that Trent really is one of the heavy hitters in endurance sports nutrition, one of the most well-respected researchers in his field. So it was a great honor to have him on, and I really hope that you will find this episode very interesting. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Something that uh, quite a few listeners have been asking about is which Precision Hydration products to get because precision hydration produce electrolytes, as you know, but they have different ways of uh, providing them. So they have sachets and tablets and blister-packed capsules. So I'll be very brief and instead direct you to the article on the precision hydration website. Uh, when you go to the shop and uh, you click on a product, you will have a link that will take you actually directly to an article describing the difference between the uh, the sachets uh, or drink mixes and the tablets and the capsules. But in brief, the capsules, the blister pack capsules are perfect for things like the running leg of a triathlon race because you can carry them around and you don't need to be carrying a lot of fluid to be able to consume them. The, the tablets are great. They have very sort of convenient packaging. You can have a lot of them in your jersey pockets, for example. And they're also non-caloric, so they don't have any energy, any calories in them. But they do have sweetener, so they're not natural. And uh, the drink mixes are all natural because they, instead of sweetener, just contain sugar. So they also contain energy. So you can use the electrolytes as part of your fueling strategy as well. So so those are the main differences. And uh, you can, as I said, find out more on the Precision Hydration website. Go to the shop and under each of the, those particular products, there is a link where you can get to the article that describes those differences and the different applications for them in more detail. But this is all to say that depending on the application, there should be a perfect electrolyte product for you on precisionhydration.com. And you can get 15% off that order with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka has some really cool news in the eyewear category, and that is that they can now add blue light blocking coating on any pair of eyeglasses or uh, reading glasses and this is us only for now but that is uh, some exceptionally useful news because uh, as you may know the blue light emitted by lighting all around us can make have an impact on how well we sleep how easily we fall asleep and things like that 
So if you are more sensitive in particular, but for anybody really, it can make sense to to have to block some of that blue light late in the evening, a couple of hours before you're going to bed. And to be able to add that to your eyeglasses is really a perfect, very easy way of doing that. And by the way, that won't turn your glasses blue. It will be an invisible layer that looks just like normal glasses, but blocks the specific wavelength of that blue light. So check that out. Also remember that Roku has tons of other cool features in their eyewear category, like the ability to take an online vision test to upgrade your, upgrade your prescription. And also they have home try-on options. Go to roku.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your order and go to roku.com and check out all the products. So without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Welcome to that triathlon show, Trent. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you. Can Can you start by just introducing yourself to the audience and tell them more about what you do and what your background is and so on? Sure. Yeah. No problem. I'm uh, Trent Stellenworth, and I live in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, where I'm one of the performance directors at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific, which is one of our Canadian and Paralympic um, uh, training centers. Um, I primarily work with endurance sport athletes, so the sport of athletics or track and field, as well as uh, a little bit of work in the past and currently with with rowing and with triathlon and with uh, mountain bike. Um, And and then on the side, I've worked with ultra runners and um, a few bits and bobs over the years. So I'm also adjunct at the local university. So I have a few grad students and try to plug away on sports science, applied sports science research uh, when I can. And uh, you have a, a pretty decent athletics background yourself. Can you tell us more about that? Oh, yeah, I was a pretty good middle, an okay middle distance runner in high school. And, and then I went to Cornell University and pursued uh, track and field there. Uh, everything from the 800 to cross country. Um, with, with an old, yeah, I was a pretty decent national level type of person. Um during my PhD, I got into coaching, and uh, since then, I've then um, coached or worked as a physiologist or, or in, in the area of nutrition with, with lots of track and field athletes. So, for example, my wife is a um, multi-time Olympian in the uh, 1500, and and probably if there's any sport I'm most up to speed on, it's it's distance running. All right. And and in your work, so you mentioned their nutrition being a key part of what you do. Uh, can, can you just... Uh, Tell us a bit more about the, the scope of your work. Is it a lot of applied nutrition? How much is just regular like exercise science, more broadly speaking, than nutrition? And in terms of your research, same question. <clears throat> yeah, I would say that um, over the last five to ten years, I've probably evolved more into applied physiology than just sports nutrition. But prior to that time, almost every piece of research that I was undertaking or doing was looking at that intersection between nutrition and exercise, nutrition and physiology. And so, I don't know, of all my papers, I I would assume about 75% of them involve some level or some aspect of of nutrition, whether it's um, carbohydrate metabolism or sports nutrition or questionnaires. More recently, uh, I've been involved in a lot of REDS research, relative energy deficiency in sport. But then I, I also have some papers just in and around heat acclimation and altitude training, um, for example, as well. So my sweet spot is really trying to marry up where 
nutrition meets exercise and exercise training and 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 the periodization of those aspects and i i think later we'll we'll try to unpack that a little more yeah yes we'll get to that but uh first can you describe how important you think nutrition is both when it comes to the the day-to-day nutrition but also in race nutrition in endurance performance is it something that has uh, potentially a significant influence or marginal influence or no or yeah what what is the degree of importance there I think my answer to that might sound almost contradictory, but just just hang with me here. Um, I think in many instances, the barrier to entry or the ability to apply nutrition, generally speaking, is really easy. The barrier to entry is really low. If people just generally eat three or four uh, nutritious meals a day with lots of colors and a range of macronutrients, and they include a few snacks, especially around training, you're probably 90 to 95% there. And on top of that are then all the, you know, little specific interventions that sports sciences and sports nutrition has uh, research has kind of have shown. But conversely, even though the barrier to entry is kind of really easy or, or, or not too complex, uh, we could also run an experiment and say, oh, okay, let's, um, let's just skip nutrition for a couple of days and see how you feel. And obviously, everyone knows that you would feel horrible and you would feel weak and you'd have, you know, it just it wouldn't work. Uh, even if you said, let's just, <clears throat> you know, what if you got, uh, say, 50 percent less sleep in a night? Well, that impact's probably quite big. But if you if you ate 50 percent less calories for a few days, I would argue that the impact would be a lot greater in terms of just how you felt and how training would go and especially how competition would go. And I've seen instances where athletes have come into a competition and been a bit nervous and not eaten enough and bonked, completely bonked because they were underfueled for that competition. And so my answer to that is the barrier to entry is actually really easy. Um, it takes some lifestyle interventions. You got to learn your way around the kitchen a little bit. Uh, but if you don't master that, then the impacts can be quite quite large and especially if 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 you don't take in any nutrition whatsoever or um even the the basic minimum so i hope that frames it maybe in a slightly uh different way yeah it it does and uh another perspective on on that same question is uh, is there a difference between so you mentioned there well the barrier to entry is really low like we don't need to do a lot to get 90 percent of the way there those last few percentages uh how important are they for am- for amateur athletes compared to elite athletes? Of course, elite athletes need to do everything in their power to get those last few hundreds of a second if you're talking about the middle distance race potentially. But uh, yeah, can you talk about that maybe? Is there a difference between amateurs and elites in that matter? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And I think in a lot of instances with interventions and sports science interventions or training interventions, we think very differently about <clears throat> the elite or professional athletes versus amateur athletes in nutrition in sports nutrition. I actually don't so much. It's more about the skills and the experiences and the knowledge that the individual presents, regardless of their background in sport of being um, elite or amateur. And just like uh, sports sorts out who's elite and amateur. I also think about elite and amateur people in nutrition. And so 
in many ways, I've seen world-class athletes who are very amateur when it comes to their nutrition, and we need to work on their knowledge. We need to work on their skills. We need to work on their desire uh, and their dedication. In other words, are they you know, ready, willing, and able to engage on sports nutrition? And conversely, I've seen amateur athletes who, who are training quite a lot um, who are have their nutrition just absolutely dialed in. And so um, just like you would in sport when it comes to training, you would want to measure like wh- where's an athlete's gaps. A gap is a gift. A gap is an opportunity to improve. Um, we should do the same and we do the same with in and around nutrition, nutrition skills and application of nutrition skills. And, and so it, it really depends where the individual is, um, uh, on the spectrum of their nutrition expertise, uh, regardless, I, I believe in terms of, um, their level, uh, in terms of sport outcomes or competition. All right. Yep. And, uh, then before going into more nitty-gritty details here, uh, I want to maybe get some high-level advice. So do you have like top pieces of advice regarding nutrition for endurance athletes that that you can sort of say right away that de- these are the, the main things that you should be doing? And it can be at the very sort of uh, the bar- low barrier to, barrier to entry level, or it can be like very more detailed things, but things that you consider key pieces of advice. Yeah, no, no sweat. I think... Um, <clears throat> Uh, some of those aspects and key pieces of advice, one would be trying to include nutrition options every four to six hours throughout the day. Uh, a lot of athletes will skip or have a very small breakfast, and, and that's that's a big, that can be a big red flag over time, as a few studies have now shown. If you chronically do that, you can develop um, some symptoms of REDS, I said it earlier, relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, so yeah, regularly having foods or snacks every, uh, four to six hours, trying to spread your nutrition evenly throughout the day. A lot of people back end their day. So they'll eat just an absolute gargantuan meal at the end of the day. Um, and I'm on a few papers where, for example, in protein, if you can only assimilate so much protein over every four to six hours, about 20 grams. And if, even though you've you know, eating 60 grams at the end of the day. And on paper, you've checked off your daily protein requirements. You've done it in a very inefficient way. So spreading calories throughout the day is is number two. Um, Number three would be focusing on uh, nutrition and calories, probably 20 to 25% of your total nutrition and calories wrapped up in and around training and especially in the few hours uh, after training. So just an emphasis there, especially hard training sessions. Um, And so those would be the big three things that I would uh, tend to look at and look for. Um, Regarding competition, a really big one is, especially in endurance sport as we're focused on today, is really practicing and working on your carbohydrate and fluid or hydration plan. Um, Ideally, first in in workouts that are going to mimic the race demand, so those really long, hard workouts, so that when race day comes around, um, you have a really well-practiced and well-dialed-in plan. Um, but at the same time, you know when and where you can make pivots or changes because, um, you know, things happen, uh, especially in ultra races where sometimes, um, yeah, uh, you might miss an aid station or drop a bottle or, or whatever. So those would be my, my big four or five uh 
points to focus on. Yeah, that's a really good advice, uh, all of them. So uh, thank you for that. Now, one topic that I want to discuss that you have done quite a bit of work in is uh, periodized nutrition, as you already mentioned. And yeah, again, the context here is endurance athletes specifically. So can you talk a bit more about that? You can sort of freely talk about this and I can maybe interject where needed or come with follow-up questions, but talk a bit bit about the proposed benefits and mechanisms, the evidence and uh, the applied uh, sort of science and so on. Yeah, so I think in some ways the concept of periodized nutrition has probably um, <laughs> gone above and beyond what I think many of us thought it it might. And, I, and we can break it down quite simply uh, to a definition, something like this. The purposeful nutrition intervention timed around training and or recovery or daily requirements. And within that, we can think about micro-periodization. So it's how you place nutrition in the day or around the day or around training or even after training. Um, meso-periodization of, of nutrition interventions that might be something that lasts, you know, a week to a month. Like maybe that's a creatine loading phase or, or something along those lines. And then macro-periodization are, are concepts of thinking about nutrition along with training uh, long-term over months to years. So we might think about body composition optimization. Um, we might think of a prolonged iron supplement as examples of, of macro periodization. Uh, so yeah, in a paper, I think about 15 or 17 years ago, I was the IOC consensus statement uh, and I, I was honored to write the, be the lead author for the middle distance paper. We first presented this concept where we moved and showed caloric, changes, estimated caloric changes and macronutrient changes for a middle distance athlete throughout the year because a middle distance runner at certain times of the year might be running 150 kilometers a week, but in competition phase when they're tapered and, and they're getting ready to compete, they might only run you know 60 or, or 80 kilometers a week and the intensity is much higher. So obviously the caloric requirements just with what I've stated are, are very profound and very, very different. I think in many instances, periodized nutrition is just obvious and it already happens serendipitously or by chance. So for example, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, research and science around the periodized implementation of low glycogen and low carbohydrate availability training. But conversely, you know, I worked when I worked more closely with our Olympic rowing program, they would have triple days. So they'd be on the water three times in a day. And the 70 year old coach doesn't know anything about molecular signaling or AMP kinase or low carbohydrate availability training. But I, I don't need to take muscle biopsies to tell you that on the, the, the third hard training session on the water of the day at three o'clock in the afternoon, um, those folks have low muscle glycogen. And it just, it kind of happens by, um, you know, by chance in some instances uh, and through trial and error of coaches. So it's a massive topic when you present it like that. And um, basically, it's just important for people to understand the demands of the training and the demands of the competition. So like what physically determines the performance and then try to match up appropriate nutrition interventions for those uh, gaps. So for example, um, you're not going to give creatine to a marathoner because 
the performance determinants of the marathon are much different than in sprinting. But you might consider creatine supplementation uh, at certain times of the year in a sprinter. And so those are some simple examples and hopefully frames that um, really large area. Yeah. And I think that a big one that uh, that you mentioned there that has been researched a lot in recent years is the, the low glycogen uh, paradigm and uh, training sometimes with, with low glycogen stores and sometimes with high glycogen <clears throat> stores. And uh, if we go a bit deeper into, into that specifically, uh, I, I've talked with a lot of coaches in both triathlon and in cycling in particular that say that they either don't do it because they kind of know that they are anyway going to end up in low glycogen just based on the volume of training, as you mentioned there with the rowing example. Yeah, uh, I have also talked with some coaches that mentioned that they are doing it, but they are quite careful with it, maybe doing it for a few weeks, once per week tends to be what they do in that case. And very few would do it more often than that. And in some of the research, uh, it is uh, taken to a bit more of an extreme, if you will. So uh, if you approach this first from, from like the applied side of things, what, what do you do when you consult with athletes and coaches in uh, in in your neck of the woods there yeah so i think there's a lot of moderating factors and contextual factors that we don't always raise up uh when regarding low carbohydrate availability or low glycogen training and the application of that and some of those moderating factors are, are the factor the idea that um in non-weight dependent low eccentric sports so um, cycling rowing swimming they normally and routinely do 20 to 30 hours of training a week in weight dependent eccentric type sport like running even your top top kenyan marathoners will top out at maybe 12 hours of running a week it is a completely different paradigm in terms of neuromuscular load and fatigue and glycogen utilization rates and uh, um, in, in thinking about applying low carbohydrate availability in those two paradigms and, or in those, those, those two different groupings of sports, strut endurance versus power endurance. And so um, in many instances, if you're a cyclist and um, you know, as a coach, you want to bring the cyclist over the next couple of years to 25 and 30 hour weeks, um, if you still got training headroom to move into, you might focus on that first before starting to play around and manipulate carbohydrate availability. Conversely, uh, if you're a marathoner and you physically can't run more steps because of increased injury risk, um, cause it, it does pound on you. It's, it's much, it's pretty hard to get over 250 or even 200 kilometers a week of running. How do we there mimic the demands of the last 10K of the marathon without having to send the athlete out for 30 kilometers of running first? Well, we can do that through sports nutrition. We can manipulate carbohydrate availability uh, so that when they, you know, do a one hour run in the afternoon after hard intervals in the morning where they haven't recovered with carbohydrate intake, that that one hour run or that 90 minute run in the afternoon feels an awful lot like the last 10 K of a marathon because they're, you know, they're under low muscle uh, glycogen conditions. And so I think that there's a, a lot of moderating factors we need to think about around the application of that, including the level of the athlete, the total training durations that the athletes typically do, whether or not they still have training headroom to move into, you know, they're, they're young and developing still, <clears throat> 
what their overall nutrition um, expertise and skills are, because implementing some of this stuff at home with an athlete on their own is much different than the examples that, you know, Asker, you can Drew for James Morton show us in professional cycling where, you know, they have a full-time paid chef along with uh, an assistant registered dietitian, along with James and Asker to look, look over the whole program. Well, that's, you know, you can implement some of these complex things um, and an entire team there uh, much more easily, um, you know, given that professional setup that the vast majority of athletes don't have, even elite endurance athletes. So um, those are the types of conversations I'll have <clears throat> with athletes and coaches when thinking about trying to implement aspects of this. And, you know, what is it feasible? Is it what are the logistics? But then we also look at all of this is in many instances, people think it is always a reward, but there's also risk involved. Um, you risk underfueling the athlete. You risk uh, the potential, um, excuse me, if this is done too often and too long to potentially downregulate the ability for carbohydrate um, oxidation, which is really important for high intensity intervals. And there's now a couple of papers emerging showing low carbohydrate availability increases bone markers for increased bone breakdown. So there could be a bone risk involved with this as well. Now, they're emerging papers, and we need to look more carefully at it. But there are a couple of examples now in the literature um, out of the Louise Burke's lab, the Australian Institute of Sport, and out of James Morton's lab in Liverpool. Uh, the first author is Hammond et al., showing this increase in the in bone breakdown markers in the blood with low carbohydrate availability uh, training. So I think, um, as with everything in life, there's a sweet spot and there's a risk and reward, and it's always important to think about those moderating factors and the context of the environment um, that you're working in. Would uh, the new bone marker research be perhaps a bit of a contraindication for for women to undertake this kind of protocol since they might be more uh, more prone to to lower bone density and even young uh, young athletes that are still still growing still developing no exactly and those are, those would be two other moderating factors we we could have a great brainstorm here and come up with a list of uh, contextual or moderating factors that a practitioner needs to consider when applying an intervention and, and um, yeah, someone with low bone mineral density of which um, uh, women are more at risk for that than males would, would be a moderating factor, the, the level of the athlete for sure. Um, now those studies are just emerging and I'm just highlighting them. They're literally published in the last year, but it is an interesting paradigm. And at least the unpublished data out of the Australian Institute of Sport shows that the bone markers of breakdown are worse and low carbohydrate availability, then low energy availability, at least over five days. And so then your head starts to spin like, okay, are all these low energy availability uh, research papers, they, they almost all always result in low carbohydrate availability because energy availability and carbohydrate availability tend to go hand in hand, up and down together. That's what you manipulate. And, uh, Because you, you don't move protein much, so you just you, you're you're putting the carbs and fat up and down. You only have two levers there, and so are some of the bone outcomes that we've seen in Red's papers and Triad papers are they result of the low energy availability or the low carbohydrate availability or both? And I think there's there's still a lot of um, 
a lot of question marks there that we need to unpack further. Yeah, uh, I'll mention at this point to the listeners that uh, we had an episode, an interview with Margot Mountjoy, who I know you worked a lot with yep. uh, on, among other things, the, the IOC consensus statement on REBS. So uh, so I'll link to that episode in the show notes for listeners that want to go back and, and listen to, to that. But coming back to the uh, the benefits, the potential benefits of training with low glycogen availability, you mentioned there for marathoners being able to simulate the, the latter part of, of the race. It, so that's a kind of race-specific uh, benefit. What are the other benefits? Are there uh, mechanistic benefits, signaling and things? What, what What is the level of evidence when it comes to actual performance? Yeah, so... There tends to be a philosophy a lot of, in many endurance coaches that you get 75% of your adaptation in the last 25% of the workout, you know, give or take, something like that. And I think a lot of that syncs up with the idea that your glycogen stores and your glucose availability late in the workout are, are always the lowest as well. And I would say that there there is, over the last 15 or 20 years, a, a very large piece of strong evidence to show that your signaling molecules in your skeletal muscle, signaling proteins, are upregulated when training with low glycogen contents. And so what that means is, obviously, there's responses within the muscle to endurance training. Those responses can also be amplified when that endurance training occurs with low muscle glycogen or low glucose availability, such as morning fasted training, and that the signaling cascade there um, tends to work through AMP kinase and PGC1-alpha, and then there's also the PPAR deltas from the fat side of things. It's It's a whole alphabet soup to say, on paper, it looks like you will induce more mitochondrial biogenesis, more uh, fat and carbohydrate transporters, uh, more capillarization. <clears throat> in other words, an endurance phenotype. We're creating an extra stress to further push that muscle uh, into an adapted endurance phenotypic state. And I think that the data for the signaling is super strong. Where the data is not as strong is the studies that have then tried to incorporate um, performance outcomes. So you'll have usually a two-group design and one group will do a bit of periodic low glycogen training, usually every other workout. The other group will do every workout with high carbohydrate availability, you know, and then they, they have biopsies and they'll measure performance pre and post and both groups equally improve. And uh, so the finding the definitive outcome um, of training has been challenging. However, it's you also have to interpret and look at each of these studies very carefully. And I'm going to go into a little bit of a rabbit hole to frame these studies. Most of these studies implement open, self-selected training. And that's how athletes train. If you have an interval session, the athletes are going to try to run or, or bike that interval session as hard as they can over the five reps. When you induce and undertake low glycogen training, the total work done tends to be lower because you can't hit as high a wattage or you can't run as fast. And so because it's self-selected training and because the low glycogen group tends to do less total work, 
even though that less total work might be amplified in the muscle, you might just end up almost in a net neutral space because the high carbohydrate group is able to just push more wattage or do more work. Um, and, and in the end, both groups almost end up, end up in the, in the same situation at the end of the workout, even though the signaling might be a little bit different. Some of the mechanical forces and the stresses on the body and the high glycogen group might've enhanced training outcomes, you know, in a slightly different way. So it's important to, to think about the training, um, that way, because it, it doesn't, it does somewhat change the interpretation of uh of what you're doing and 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 how you're implementing it yeah that, those are some key points and uh, this is just my uh, coaching speculation and how i sometimes have implemented this but i would never implement this in those high intensity workouts uh, i would always uh, encourage the athletes to to get into the high intensity workouts with with good glycogen stores and having fuel appropriately beforehand and and when training low that would be more like a an endurance workout it could potentially be more of a moderate intensity workout but but not something that is above threshold so to say and uh, i don't know that's just my sort of how i've done it so now i'd like you to comment on what's right or wrong about that i 100 percent agree with you and some of the early studies in this field had flipped the intervention around where they used a, like a long 100 or 150 minute ride to lower glycogen and then they would feed a low carbohydrate diet for like four or five hours and then the athletes would come in to do intervals at high intensity intervals on low muscle glycogen and i, I had a lot of discussions 10 15 years ago i was like uh the coach in me is like that is the, uh, that's the opposite way of the way that i would think about implementing um, this paradigm. And I think that that has shifted. There's a great open access paper out of James Morton's groups in Liverpool by Sam Impey called Fuel for the Work Required um, that goes over this entire field. So for the listener, if you're interested in this, uh, check that great paper out. And in the back end of that paper, there's a practical session where they have um, the application of carbohydrate availability across a, a four or five day training program and James has it highlighted as a traffic light, green, high carb, yellow, medium carb, red, low carb sessions. And, and you can see in there exactly the implementation of carbohydrate availability, like, like you've just said, is let, let's keep the high intensity intervals well fueled, maximize the neuromuscular overload, maximize the wattages as best as we can. Um, and then off of those workouts, when you have a prolonged, you know, aerobic, uh, you know, fat adaptation type of endurance session that's going to be many, many hours. It's it's there that you might manipulate the carbohydrate availability. Mm. Coming back to the point of uh, uh, science not having shown yet any performance benefits or uh, a constant uh, high carbohydrate availability diet, uh, could that be because if they have actually been doing more or less every other workout in a depleted state that over the course of an entire training cycle, they, they end up doing significantly less work than uh, than the high carbohydrate group. And so maybe the amount of work in a low glycogen state is simply too much overall, uh, irrespective of which sessions those are in. Yeah, th that's exactly one interpretation of the data. And, and 
to be clear, like there are some studies that have shown performance benefits of low carbohydrate availability. My point is just that the consistency of that data is not is not there. It, it, it's a bit all over. So if we take the um, the famous uh, supernova sport nutrition studies that have been done on world class race walkers with Louise Burke out of the Australian Institute of Sport, they've had a few group designs where it's a hundred percent high carbohydrate availability, a hundred percent low carbohydrate availability in other words a group on a keto diet and then a group that periodizes it so they they move carbohydrate availability around and the high carbohydrate availability and the periodized group both had improvements in performance equally statistically equally while the keto group um actually went a bit slower and had no improvement in performance over a three yeah three week training camp so there's an example where the periodized approach was no better than the high carbohydrate availability approach. The other really challenging piece with studies in the literature is classically you'll get recreationally trained males come in where they'll do say maybe six sessions a week of training of which three of them have low carbohydrate availability and they'll do a three-week training block and measure pre and post over three weeks. And so you're looking at a total of nine sessions of low-carbohydrate availability, three per week, uh, out of 18 total training sessions. Um, our Olympic rowers, if you add in weight room, they do 18 sessions a week. And so the the... Yeah, the stimulus that you get with just nine sessions over three weeks, and I'm not pooing on the data. It is really hard to do this stuff and control nutrition, and uh, three weeks is already a gargantuan um, uh, training study. It's just, you know, how much does that little slice of data in recreationally trained athletes really represent what elite athletes are doing in the field um, week in, week out, year in, year out? Yeah. No, that's that's a really really excellent point. Bringing it to the amateurs, so you mentioned there when talking about runners that since they're limited by the the impact of of the sport, running being so different from cycling and swimming and other uh, disciplines, that uh, for them it might make a lot of sense to do this because they they can't sort of lift the uh, the stimulus by increasing their training volume. And we might uh, have the same uh, the same in theory going on with amateur athletes that are limited by having a job and having a family and not being able to train as much as they could do just physically if they got paid for it and so on. So, so what is your take on amateurs implementing the periodized nutrition paradigm from in that context? Yeah, so uh, you know what we're getting at here is maximizing the training bang for the buck, and we're trying to. Uh, how can we get more per step or more per pedal revolution or swim stroke? And, and, and you're right. And there have been instances with more amateur recreational athletes um, who, who are still training at a pretty high level, but they're, they're, you know, full-time business people and, and they're time limited where when working with them, we've checked and done a bit of an audit. Like how is your general nutrition? Are you at risk for an eating disorder, or disordered eating, um, you know, do you have it? We, we went through all the moderating factors we talked about earlier in the podcast and, and generally it looked okay to try and implement something like this. And, uh, we, ha or I have, uh, 
more in my old life when I used to live in Switzerland, I used to work and consult with a few um, kind of more high end Ironman businessmen and businesswomen where we would implement some aspects of low carbohydrate availability training to just try and create a little more of a signal or stimulus um, per training session because uh, they just didn't have the time to get the hours in. So there is potential application there for sure, as long as um, they're able to execute things and, um, and stay healthy. And when you worked with uh, that kind of athlete, the Ironman, working man or woman uh how often would you would you implement that per week roughly and would it be year round or would it be specific periods of the year well usually in those instances if they would come to me and they had like a goal or a project like i want to qualify for the time cut off at boston or i want to qualify for ironman switzerland <clears throat> I would, i'd usually have a reality check conversation with them first and really lay down the type of commitment and the weeks required to satisfy that goal, given where they were and where they wanted to go. I would really highlight to them that they need to go home and talk to their partner and family about this goal and be really transparent and clear. I would then ask them uh, to come to me and show to me clearly in their schedule and agenda where they can put the work in to make this goal occur. And unless those things happen up front, I would usually be pretty reticent or cautious to want to get involved in the project because um, it, it's fine to verbalize these really big audacious goals. But if you, if you just don't even have it set up in your lifestyle to go after it, then, uh, then that's challenging. Or I would say, okay, let's, let's just have a goal around getting consistent and fit and then work from there. And maybe in a year from now, we talk about trying to qualify for Boston or Ironman. So that that's first and foremost, the reality check. Secondly, I would usually try to work with the person a little while just to get and better understand their ebbs and flows of training and how they're responding and how they're feeling. Um, and then thirdly, there would be instances, perhaps maybe two, maximum three times a week where we might implement some level of carbohydrate manipulation. Classically, the easiest one to do is morning fasted training. However, over the years, I think the stimulus you get out of that is a much less than low muscle glycogen training. And so, you know, they'll get up, they'll have some water, a cup of coffee, you know, and then go out for a two-hour ride at first thing in the morning. Um, uh, as an example, the lower muscle glycogen training, especially in run training, uh, tends to be physically uh, results in much higher RPEs and is really challenging. So in those instances, we might save those for a Saturday or a Sunday when they have more time to recover afterwards and they're not, you know, uh, also putting in, if they're executives, a perhaps a 10, 10 hour plus work day. So, um, it, again, there's all those moderating and contextual factors that you need to work through and figuring out if and when and how much you can implement this or at all with uh with each person that you work with yeah okay that's good and uh finally for future directions of uh, this field what, what do you think is going on and uh, what what new data are we expecting waiting on and also what kind of work do you want to see done uh, in the future if you can just uh, dream up your your dream study so i think Uh, you mentioned you had Margot Mountjoy on uh, recently. I think there's a real scientific but also community 
um, onslaught, and, and, and I say that in a positive way, around relative energy deficiency in sport and the need and requirement for more female-specific data to understand that females are not just small males. And I know a, a, a lot of colleagues around the world have been starting to work more and more around relative energy deficiency in sport and what that is and whether the, what's the diagnosis exactly and what are more early indicators and markers. So I'll highlight that, and I, I think we're going to make significant progress in that space in the next five and ten years. I'll also highlight that I think in many instances, um, overtraining syndrome is actually REDS. And a bunch of us are working on a review paper to unpack that simple statement, but it's incredibly complex. Because the underpinning etiology of REDS is energy availability. And the equation of energy availability is simple. It's energy intake minus exercise energy expenditure divided by fat-free mass. So energy intake minus exercise energy expenditure. And the, the REDS and nutrition folks tend to focus a lot on energy intake. And of course, all the overtraining, overreaching, training overload research and data is on the exercise part of that energy availability equation. And I think that that energy availability equation nicely links up concepts of both REDS and overtraining. And so I think we're going to see a shift in the literature that better appreciates um, the fact that underfueling and energy intake are intimately linked to many, not all, many of the overtraining syndrome symptoms. And if you look at some of the literature around overtraining symptom markers, the crossover with the REDS markers is is profound. It's, it's like you could almost take a paper, flip out OTS, put in REDS, or vice versa, take out REDS and just put in OTS, and you could you could read the paper. It would it would work either way. Um, now I'm not at all saying that ener poor energy intake or energy availability is the exclusive reason for overtraining. Um, you know, you could have good energy intake and a complete lack of sleep, which could be the primary driver of an overtraining issue. But I do think in many, many instances that that is a um, huge confounding factor that is probably not as appreciated in the literature and out with coaches and sports medicine physicians um, as it should be. And, and so that's another area that I think we're going to see more and more um, information on uh, in the next uh, in the next five or 10 years. And specifically within the concept of periodized nutrition, is there anything there that you think we'll see or that you would want us to, to see coming out from the research? Yes. Uh, maybe in that piece, I'll mention that I think from an athlete perspective, we've come a long ways, but we still have a long ways to go to know how to best periodize an iron supplement. We didn't even touch on iron. Iron is massively important in endurance sport for blood health and hemoglobin um, uh, health. And Pete Peeling's group out of Australia has done, and I've been involved in a few of those papers and reviews. We've, we've, uh, we've collaborated a bit with him, but mainly his group has done a great job highlighting how you might start to think about periodizing your iron supplement within the day, within training, within hard training um, uh, blocks of the year within light training blocks of the year, but there are still a lot of questions that remain there around uh, the periodization of of iron supplements. 
Well, that is really interesting. Uh, can you give a, a brief overview of what what we do know uh, today about that? Sure, I can I can try to do it briefly. I, I think a lot of what we know um, hinges on the fact that um, about 20 years ago, uh, the the counter-regulatory protein-based hormone hepcidin uh, was uh, isolated and identified. And hepcidin is released during situations of inflammation to slow and or block iron absorption. So when hepcidin is high in the, in the blood and circulating, uh, the ability to maximize iron absorption, the bioavailability of iron absorption is decreased. And originally, uh, hepcidin uh, was first identified in disease state and inflammatory states, uh, mainly because bacteria need iron to proliferate. And therefore, it was probably an evolutionarily evolution counter mechanism to say, oh, if there's, you know, you're in a disease state and there's bacteria, um, we should limit iron um, absorption so that um, that limits bacteria proliferation. But it's also increased with hard exercise. So acutely, hepcidin is um, increased over four to six hours after a hard training session because, again, training is an inflammatory response. Hepcidin, we know at altitude, actually initially increases and then starts to decrease. Hepcidin is acutely increased when you actually give an iron supplement. So splitting your iron supplement dose during the day results in lower bioavailability than just taking a single dose because of the negative feedback loop of hepcidin. We know hepcidin is higher in situations of poor energy availability. So there's some data on the uh, anorexic um, research um, showing that hepcidin is higher. And perhaps that's part of a reason why a lot of uh, athletes with reds also have uh, low iron or have a very hard time getting their iron ferritin statuses in their bloods up to an adequate level, even with supplementation. And then finally, we know hepcidin is higher late in the day. Um, so there's a circadian rhythm to it rather than early in the day. So that impacts all the areas and times and how you might think about when and where you place your iron supplement. And I haven't even talked about the idea that um, calcium slows bioavailability of iron, vitamin C increases bioavailability of iron, tannins slow bioavailability of iron, so tannins are in tea and coffee. And and so there's, there's just all these confounding factors that play into how and when and where you might choose to put an iron supplement. And so long story short, we try to use a single dose iron supplement, not multiple doses throughout the day. And we have a paper at Altitude uh, showing a single dose resulted in more hemoglobin mass than a split dose, even though they were given the, the two groups are given the same amount of iron per day. Just how you dosed it resulted in different outcomes of hemoglobin. Um, generally speaking, if you can take it uh, late, um, early in the day, it's better because um, hepcidin is lower. However, you then need to consider whether or not you're having tea and coffee or milk at breakfast because those are confounding factors. Um, there's emerging data in non-athletes that taking your iron supplement every other day uh, might be better for both gastrointestinal tolerance and also total bioavailability. Um, if you have to correct an iron, that's probably not enough iron going in, 
Uh, but if you need to maintain iron stores, you have a great ferritin, then every other day is probably just as good as uh, and, and can be just as effective as every day. Again, that data is not in athletes. So, um, and then there's a whole other host of questions there that we need to start to unpack, like better understanding energy availability and glycogen contents. Um, acute low energy availability causes a massive spike in hepcidin, by the way. There's a brand new paper in JAP out of Japan on that um, last year. So maybe hepcidin's an early indicator of uh, poor energy availability. Big question mark on that, that question. So as you, you start to dig into these things, you, you start to learn more and more. And I think um, especially given how important heme, optimizing hemoglobin is to endurance performance and how important iron is and the interplay with altitude and iron and hemoglobin, that um, being up to speed on this field uh, is a place to watch and important. Um, if interested, um, I've been on a few of the reviews, but Pete Peeling, his group has a couple of just absolutely outstanding two or three seminal reviews in the last few years uh, on this topic that um, that you can look for. Right, that was a right. long answer. Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah. that was a short question. No problem. Long no, no problem. A long answer would have been two hours, I think, on a topic like that, as as with all things when when it comes to to endurance sports and sports science in general. But just one follow up on that, uh, I would uh, ask you who should take an iron supplement supplement in the first place. What are the prerequisites for for taking one? Yeah, so there's a few cutoffs there, and um, Pete's most recent are, are you still there sorry yep yep okay um my screen just flashed all good we're good uh there's a few prerequisites there and, and pete just published some of this um normal clinical blood work data suggests that unless ferritin's below around 10 or 11 it's no problem however there's now enough data in athletes to suggest a cutoff of 30 to 35 and pete's most recent um, publication and, and another one I was on around altitude nutrition. Um, we've we've really nailed that. And so, again, to, not to plug, uh, or I will plug my own work. Is last year uh, I was a lead author on um, nutrition for altitude in sports medicine, um, and there's a huge section in there on iron optimization and a flow chart of what you need to do. So you can check that out. It's open access. It's free. Anyways, uh, we also had a cutoff of 35 uh, for ferritin in that if an athlete is under 35, and, and dare I say probably 40 or 50 for the guys, that it's definitely a, a yellow or orange flag. It's not a red flag yet, but you better get on top of it and you better start thinking about implementation of an oral iron supplement. As if it starts to erode more, you're, you're going to start to have some drop-offs in um, training indicators and uh, that data is Della Valla um, out of Cornell, where they had large groups of rowers, like 40 or 50 of them, where they showed um, lowish irons, but not anemic irons, already impact uh, training adaptation and some performance indicators. Um, and so I think it's important as an endurance athlete, uh, you probably get routine blood work anywhere from one to five times a year, depending on your context. For example, if you're a male athlete that's never been anemic, that has high iron intakes in your diet, maybe maybe you need one blood work a year. If you're a male or female athlete that's been repeatedly anemic despite taking supplements and maybe you're on a vegan diet, 
Oof, I would be checking that five or six times a year because you're probably living on the edge. Um, and so you just have to look at those types of things. Um, and generally speaking, in most instances, um, if you if you're on top of it, you you can definitely address um, optimizing iron in in you know in the blood and hemoglobin through an oral iron supplement. Only in extreme cases is IV iron ever used. Uh, very extreme. In fact, the better surveillance we've done with blood work, the less the less often we've ever had to use IV iron because we're able to um, detect small drops early and address it through oral iron and through dietary iron, um, optimizing your diet for iron as well. So yeah, those are some contextual factors. I would say, I don't know, 30 to 60% of endurance females are probably routinely on an iron supplement six to 10 months a year and maybe 20 to 40% of males. Uh, I'm just totally spitballing on that. It's just an estimate off the top of my head, but it's, it's probably that kind of level to make sure that that refers to the ones you you're working with and have had tested. So meaning that potentially there are a lot of people that haven't really investigated this and had uh, tests taken might need supplementation without knowing it. Correct. And so those percentages are in the athlete cohorts I work with. You're right. So they're going to be much higher. Uh, and, and, you know, some people listening in are like, oh, man, wow. Okay, maybe I need to unpack this a little bit more and, and have a look here. Yeah. And uh, one more topic that I want to get into here is just uh, going back a bit to the general nutrition nutrition considerations for, uh, well, for ultra-endurance activities specifically. So uh, I guess you would count half Ironman uh, and full Ironman definitely to that, but also things like ultra-running and uh, really long cycling races that are popping up everywhere now. So I think that in your initial advice, you covered a lot of the key points, but is there anything else that you would like to mention for ultra-endurance athletes when it comes to their day-to-day -day nutrition? Yeah, so day-to-day um, -day or competition nutrition as start well? With, start, start with day-to-day -day and then we'll move on to nutrition. Okay. Yeah, so... Uh, the race, race nutrition, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, so the... Um, I believe off the top of my head, the World Athletics, formerly IAAF, has defined an ultra race as four hours or maybe five hours or longer. So that's <clears throat> that's a fair comment, and I would put it put it into that ballpark. Um, I don't think that the general day-to-day -day nutrition recommendations that we talked about at the start need to be radically different for an ultra runner and need to be based, again, on that concept that I mentioned earlier that you know, uh, James Morton and Graham Close and Sam Impey have, have coined, which is fuel for the work required. So it depends on how much you're training and how long those training sessions are uh, and how much calories you need to consume to be an optimal energy availability. But the recommendations I gave earlier for day to day, I, I don't think need to be any different um, for uh, the ultra crowd. And what about in-race nutrition? And by the way, yeah, I think I looked it up and it's four hours is the, the cutoff that is yeah. defined as ultra-endurance activities. Yeah. So it's funny because then the, uh, some people in the, in the men's 50K aren't, uh, race walk aren't doing an ultra, but some people uh, are because <laughs> some guys get under four hours and some guys don't. So that's kind of. Yeah, fun. and and the half Ironman is often uh, exactly. not ultra endurance for men, but an ultra endurance uh, event for women. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Yeah. So for competition nutrition, it can change and be quite variable. So by that, what I mean is the longer the event, so the less the intensity of the event, I've just stated something really obvious, but the less the intensity of the event, the more your range of nutrition options increases. So if you're in a three or four day ultra race, two or three day ultra race, you can eat a lot of real food, um, you know, soups with, with noodles and salt and pretzels. I've seen pizza at the side of a, a three-day ultra race course because the intensity is relatively so low that you can consume these foods that normally would cause significant GI upset in the races that are in, you know, one and two hours where the intensity is, is really high. Um, I would also consider the implementation of more and more real foods as the race duration gets on, especially out past 15 to 20 hours. It's more satisfying for the athlete. They look forward to real food. Um, you can only put so many gels down before you're, you're, you're sick of them. Um, so that's one. Two, I think a couple of years ago with Ricardo DaCosta, who's a absolute world expert on gastrointestinal and FODMAPs and gluten-free and GI side effects. And then Dr. Martin Hoffman, who's a physician out of California, who is actually a sports med physician for a lot of these really big, big ultra races like Western States. And myself, um, we penned two review articles on nutrition and hydration aspects of ultra running and ultra racing. And in there, I had the the honor and pleasure of it was the complex of trying to write what we know around substrate and fuel utilization in ultra sports. And a lot of it is indirect based on heart rate and tracers. And, and there's only actually a handful of data um, done in that space. And basically through some back of the envelope calculations, um, I did put in there that somewhere out between 10 and 15 hours of high intensity elite racing, the exercise intensities are low enough of which carbohydrate demand is then low enough that perhaps um, uh, a keto diet could be quite effective um, in those types of uh, ultra endurance events. I'm not saying it's for everyone, but in those instances, I think there there is uh, the potential that if you have lots of GI side effects, carbohydrates don't agree with you that well. That in, in out of those types of durations of races, that the consideration of a keto diet diet intervention might be warranted to to try out. Um, I have never endorsed it for any Olympic sport because the intensity is just way too high, and you absolutely need glycogen and carbohydrate um, for performance. But in that instance, that that is one other major shift or change that I'll just highlight. Um, and, and, and I should have said that earlier around the general diet, but I, I framed it up, up here around the race demands. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfectly fine. And, uh, that brings us to other ways to potentially mitigate GI distress. So we have recently seen quite a bit of data around things like FODMAP, uh, diets and, uh, and so on. So can you talk about what, 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 what that is, how that works, but also are there any other ways of mitigating GI distress in racing? Yeah, I'm going to keep my answer here high level because that could be another one or two hour podcast. And um, 
If you haven't had her on, uh, Dana Liz is a former PhD student of mine who did her PhD and focused in on, we focused in on gluten and FODMAP interventions. And Dana Liz now works part-time with the, uh, the new Israeli um, startup nation pro cycling team and uh, has tons of experience in this space. She would, she'd be a great podcast for you. I'll, I'll plug her. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll email her. Yeah. No, she, she's well-spoken, really experienced. Um, works, worked in, works in NBA basketball. Um, anyways, Basically, the idea there is that there's a lot of crossover in symptomology between gluten and FODMAPs. And FODMAPs are offending fructose, oglio, and disaccharides, or maladapted, malabsorbed polyphenols. That's what FODMAP stands for. So it is things like lactose. It is things like onions. It is things like apples. Apples are very high in fructose. And you can look up FODMAP. and we have found in some pilot data that we published, Dana Liz is the first author, uh, I'm, I'm in the author list there somewhere, that it does seem to improve some GI symptoms in some athletes. Um, we did a double-blind crossover on gluten and found nothing. And if you look at the IBS, irritable bowel syndrome research, and there's a, a mountain of papers there, um, when you reduce FODMAPs, or when you reduce gluten, you also reduce FODMAPs. So perhaps in some of those instances uh, with individuals self-selecting lower gluten, they're also resulting in lower FODMAPs. And it's actually the FODMAPs that's maybe driving some of the response rather than the gluten, unless you're celiac, of course, or you have a celiac sensitivity, which is only about 10% of the population. So um, we have played around with that, um, worked on with that a little bit in extreme GI situations with athletes. We have tried a FODMAP intervention. Uh, I don't think anyone, any professional would ever recommend to go low or zero FODMAP for weeks and weeks and months on end. And it's just too challenging in your diet. And I think you would probably cause eating disorders or disordered eating. But instead, it's periodizing the implementation of a low or lower FODMAP intervention in and around maybe key training sessions or key races to just make sure um, the GI side effects are then minimized around those key efforts. And especially around races, when the intensity is higher, you're, 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 you're anxious in a good way for the races, you got, you got the butterflies in the stomach. And in many instances, it's all those conditions that push people over the edge with a GI problem. And so perhaps some um, in some individuals, they could consider, you know, a three or four day low or lower FODMAP on the way into a race. Um, again, I don't think um, anyone would really recommend it for, for weeks and months on end. Um, so hopefully that gives a very two minute top level overview on that. But um, GI, GI side effects and endurance racing is, is worth an ent- almost an entire podcast, in my humble opinion. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and one more subtopic on that that I want to ask you, and uh, whether you answer it from the researcher's perspective or the practitioner's is up to you or both. But training the gut, uh, how? Yeah, what's your recommendations around that training the gut to consume uh, carbohydrate or whatever race nutrition you you plan to consume in your event? Yeah, I I believe in it. So, Asuka, you can droop, and I first penned that idea of training the gut on a letter, an editorial um, question and answer back and forth. Uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 
around what interventions do we need to consider about for the first sub two hour marathon. And uh, we wrote, don't forget the gut. You can train your gut. And <clears throat> there is no direct evidence, direct evidence in humans, but there is a fair amount of animal evidence in rodents and in pigs to show that your gut transporters can be upregulated, specifically your carbohydrate transporters can be upregulated in your gastrointestinal tract, both in terms of number, but also density and efficiency of transporters when those gut, uh, when the gut has been um, continually exposed to um, sugar, to carbohydrate. Uh, that it may have adverse outcomes for obesity, but it may have, um, unique interventive opportunity in endurance sport where one might want to try and, um, yeah, train the gut. And so generally speaking, and I, I wrote a, a paper on this in terms of a case study, I think in 2012, we will implement more and more focus on gut adaptation in the four to six weeks before a major event. And especially in the last couple of weeks with the idea that you've then not only practiced your fueling protocol, but hopefully at the gut level, upregulated those transporters as well. The only indirect evidence we have in humans that this may work is a study by Greg Cox and all with Louise Burke already back 20 years ago, I think 2000, where they had two groups, one, one group trained with carbohydrate sports drinks all the way through training and another group didn't. And after one month of training with a carbohydrate sports drink, the only outcome between those two groups that was different was that carbohydrate oxidation was about 15 or 20% higher in the group that had trained with the sports drinks all the way through training, which seems to suggest that their gut had been upregulated, that they were able to absorb more and therefore oxidize more carbohydrate from the sports drink using tracer methodology um, in that group. So. Uh, there's no direct evidence. I, I'm unaware of nasogastric biopsies in athletes because uh, that, that would be the direct evidence. But there, there is a fair amount of indirect evidence. And then in the field, working with athletes, I, I've seen great progress in the ability to slowly increase and upregulate how much carbs and fluids athletes can successfully tolerate and turn into performance. Um, you know, I've had athletes start with 30 grams an hour and having some GI side effects and uh, we've worked them slowly up to 50 or 60 grams an hour as, as runners. So we've been able to double it um, over a six-week period. Yeah, and I have an injury in the pipeline with uh, Aitor Vilibay Morales, who I'm sure you've seen his work in uh, ultra-mountain runners, where they had a, one group that uh, that consumed 120 grams of of carbohydrate per hour in, in, in ultra-trail running. And uh, and they were, of course, they didn't have direct evidence. They they were it was field research, but they were well able to tolerate that after a three week period of training. So yeah. so that was quite interesting. Totally. And and now that I think about it too, Ricardo da Costa has a paper with other indirect evidence <coughs> using some of the um, gut permeability markers that you can measure on the breath, and uh, also showing it looks like gut permeability is better um, after you've trained the gut with carbohydrate than before. So yeah, there's, there's a fair amount of indicators to support that intervention. And it is absolutely an intervention that um, I strongly consider or encourage for uh, anyone that's going to have to take in fluids and carbohydrate while they race. 
Yeah, and I have a couple of interviews that I also have in the pipeline with uh, nutritionists or coaches from World Tour cycling teams, uh, where I've asked them like, "What well, what do you think will be the big things to to change or develop in the next two to five years?" And they have both said that it's basically that riders will be taking on more more carbohydrates during races. They will be training their guts to be able to do that and and taking on more. And and yeah, that's what what they think will be coming in the not too distant future i so i yeah that and that makes really really good sense because on um some of those really long stages of uh, you know approaching six hours plus you need hopefully you're getting eight to ten hours of sleep and then there's a transfer you know a long bus ride to the next stage start all of a sudden at the end of the day you're you're only left with four to six hours to try to consume um, in some athletes, four to 7,000 calories, it's just not going to happen. So you have to offset that with, okay, especially early in the stage when maybe the intensity is lower, just let's eat, 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 eat so that you, uh, in those few hours that you have to, to load back up, um, you don't have to take in quite as much uh, nutrition. And on the one day races, it, it doesn't matter near as much, but, um, on a three week tour, um, to get and be strong and, the last five to six days, it, it's an accumulation of how much um, uh, of many things, but one of which is just how much nutrition you can take in uh, in the first few weeks. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I think we're approaching the end here. And I just want to ask you the rapid fire questions, which are very short. Take one sentence to answer these. And the first question is, what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to endurance sports? I got a plug by Canadian Alex Hutchinson. Alex Hutchinson writes a great uh, outside magazine uh, blog and articles and also has written the book called Endure. And uh, I think he does an outstanding job at um, cap- uh, capturing science in a way that everyone can understand. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. He's a past guest on the podcast and uh, probably around 33% of the guests answered this question with uh, with either Endure or his blog. So, So he's by far the leader in in that category oh, that's the great. next question is, he's also uh yeah i was gonna say he's also a friend and, and and colleague is uh we're about the same age and crossed over racing for a few years many many years ago so uh, i'm biased there <laughs> did, did he also race david epstein i think he's canadian as well david's a bit old he's time. a yeah um david's a bit older than than i am so i didn't cross over with david but um I do know of his legendary high school prowess. He was a very, very good high school runner uh, in Ontario where I grew up. Right. Uh, Next one. What's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? I would say um, staying disciplined and diligent on keeping my email and work folders on my computer organized. I know this sounds really mundane and and boring but um and nowadays with just so much stuff coming at us that um day in and day out staying on top of that has saved me hours upon hours upon hours and i can find files and i have a system set up and uh that is something i think that is undervalued and underappreciated but is really impactful and really helpful um for those of us that um have a lot of electronic emails and content coming at us uh, that's a really cool answer. I like that. And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? 
I have so many people on that. I, I, I just did a talk and I have a slide I keep adding to and the font keeps getting smaller and smaller because I have about 70 names up there. Um, but if there's one of those names kind of uh, other than my parents, of course, I'd have to say my PhD advisor, Lawrence Spreet at the University of Guelph. He's an absolute level legend in skeletal muscle metabolism and caffeine and performance and applied research and mechanistic research. But above and beyond that, he's been married for over 30 years. Um, he still is fit and plays hockey. Uh, he's got three kids and um, his ability to um, balance out the work-life demands is um, exemplary. And uh, he was the MC at my wife and I's wedding and uh, continues to be a great um, mentor for me. Perfect. And finally, where can listeners follow you and follow your updates of work you're doing and, and so on? I can barely maintain a Twitter account. So I'm not on Instagram. I think I'm on Facebook. I don't even know. So I'm going to have to say Twitter. I don't have time to blog or podcast or have websites, um, but I, I am decently active on on Twitter. So T. Stellingworth. And uh, I usually try to update our, our newest work or what's going on there. Um, every now and again, I'll have a bit of a rant that is interesting too. Yeah, that is a good follow, uh, definitely. All right, thank you so much, uh, Trent. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and uh, I've learned a lot. I hope that the listeners will too. Thanks for having me on and thanks for the uh, great questions. All the best. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Trent. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. And I want to remind you once again that on the podcast page on the website, you can find episodes according to their respective categories. So for example, you can just click the nutrition tab and find all the episodes of the podcast that have been categorized as nutrition related episodes. So that's a cool feature that I want to draw some attention to. Uh, there will be a ton of links in the show notes and in the episode description, both to related episodes that I have done with uh, with different researchers in the field of nutrition and also to relevant research papers that we discussed. I won't name any, just check the episode description or the show notes. On Thursday, we have another Q&A coming out as usual. And then next Monday, I interview coach Joachim Villén from Sweden who is the coach of, among others, Vasco Vilasa, who was the surprise silver medalist from the ITU World Championships in Hamburg in 2020 at the sprint distance. Vasco had uh, a breakthrough race and uh, surprised probably all of us with his performance, where only Vincent Louis was stronger on the day. If you are looking for training plans, coaching services, or are interested in going to Mallorca for a training camp in April 2021, check out scientifictriathlon.com and the respective pages where we have all the information about all of that available. And for any further questions or inquiries, just email me michael at scientifictriathlon.com and it's michael with a K. Big thanks to our sponsor Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and get a free hydration plan by taking a quick online quiz that will give you a really good ballpark estimate for how much sodium you lose in your sweat and get 15% off your order of electrolytes with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Go and check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses now with the option to add blue light blocking coating. 
and get 20% off your order with a promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.